morning, church. My name is Luke, one of the ministers here. It's good to be together this morning. Thanks for coming out. If you're new with us especially, thanks for braving the rain today. Well done. Um, Just as a word of information before we jump in, in case of emergency, you'll find personal flotation devices under the seat in front of you. (laughs) Kidding, hope we don't need those. Hey, it's good to be together. You know, life is a journey. And I've been fortunate in my life to get to go on some pretty incredible journeys. Uh, Growing up, my dad had to travel a lot for his job. And one time when I was in high school, my dad had to travel out to California and Oregon to do some speaking. And so my mom just decided that she'd pack up the family, we'd all go with them and make a family vacation out of it. And so uh, we loaded up our family's white 15 passenger van looking like a prison transport bus. Yeah, mom, dad, all six kids, Luke, Lydia, Claire, Carl, Conrad, and Caroline, all there together in that van for 24 days. We toured the Western United States living out of that van. We camped in tents, we ate peanut butter sandwiches, and we tried really hard not to kill each other as we drove 7,000 miles through 14 states and eight national parks. It was the trip of a lifetime. But of all the incredible places we went and got to see, the most amazing place we went was Yosemite National Park. And to this day, it's hands down the most beautiful place I've ever seen. We made it through these endless, curvy mountain roads. We're all about ready to puke. And so mom pulls the van over and there, we all forgot about how carsick we were when we saw this view. We stared down the Yosemite Valley and it just captured our imaginations. Immediately, uh, my dad and I are standing awestruck, staring down the valley, and you can kind of see it there, down at the end of the valley, standing majestic like the queen of the whole park is Half Dome. Half Dome. If you own a Mac, there's a pretty good chance you've had Half Dome as your desktop picture. And when my dad and I set eyes on Half Dome, we both thought, we have to climb that. And so a few years later, when I was in college, my dad and I went back out to California, and we did. Because the thought of that grand journey just captured us. It captivated us. We couldn't get away. Life is a journey. And think about it. When we talk about our lives, we use journey terminology. We talk about where we come from, where we've been, where we're headed. Because we like to think of our lives as some story, some journey that begins someplace and is going someplace else. It's going to end up in some final, grand, glorious destination. Life's a journey. And I think that journey metaphor is a good and God-given thought. Because actually... The story of the Bible is the story of a journey. Back in the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sin for the first time, they ruin God's creation, they get kicked out of the garden. The rest of the Bible is the story of God trying to bring humanity back, to restore his creation, to take us on a journey back to the garden. The Bible begins and ends in a garden because life is a journey. And all throughout scripture, God takes his people on journeys, these really difficult, grueling, life-altering journeys, because God will never insult you by calling you to an easy journey. We've all got a hard one. And over and over and over in the Old Testament, as God's people are on this journey, well, oftentimes they choose to do their own thing instead of following God's lead, and they end up suffering as a result. And so for hundreds of years, the people of God, the nation of Israel, they're overrun and enslaved and occupied, even exiled. 
And yet through it all, God doesn't give up on them. He sends these prophets over and over and over again to remind the people that God will provide a way out, that he will rescue them, that he will send someone who's gonna take their barren, curvy, twisted roads of their journey, and he's gonna make them a straight path to follow God. There's somebody's gonna come, somebody called the Messiah. And so for hundreds of years, even as the Jews are dominated and defeated by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans, they don't give up. They cling to the hope that somebody would rescue them, somebody would make life better, somebody would make this journey easier, somebody's coming, called the Messiah. And then, after centuries of waiting and silence in a quiet little sheep town, a teenage virgin gives birth to a baby, names him Jesus. The angels sing, the shepherds testify, the elderly prophesy, the magi worship, and they all agree, this baby, this little boy is the one who will save us. Perhaps at last the Messiah is here. But Jesus, this child, he grows up in a normal town, in a normal family, works a normal job. But then he turns 30, and from age 30 on, the rest of Jesus' life is anything but normal. This all happens, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke, which are the stories of Jesus' life. We studied the Gospel of Luke for several months last year. And Luke, all throughout his Gospel, the author, he, he goes to great lengths to show us over and over again that the things Jesus is doing are the things the prophets said the Messiah would do. And so at the beginning of, Luke's, or of Jesus' ministry, Luke tells a story about when Jesus goes back to his hometown and he goes to synagogue. Hometown boy comes back to church. And he stands up in the synagogue at his hometown in Luke chapter four. He opens the scroll and he reads a text from the prophet Isaiah, a prophecy about what the Messiah will do when he comes. Jesus reads this text. The spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus reads, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolls up the scroll, sits down, and you could hear a pin drop in that synagogue. Everybody's on the edge of their seat, all eyes on Jesus. What's he gonna tell us about the Messiah? And Jesus says, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, it's me. I'm the Messiah, and I'm here to rescue you. Luke goes on and tells us about a time a little while later when Jesus goes down by the lake, and he sees some supposedly professional fishermen who are down there on the shore washing their nets. They'd fished all night, but they hadn't caught a thing. Sounds like my kind of fisherman. I don't go fishing very often. I mostly just go casting, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Jesus hops in their boat. He tells them to shove off. Let's, let's try again. Let's go out one more time. Begrudgingly, fine, whatever. So they all get in the boat. They head out into the water. They get out a little ways. And Jesus says, well, drop your nets right here. Okay, if you say so. Fishermen throw their nets in the water, fully expecting to just drag back in an empty net like they've been dragging in empty nets all night. 
But about as soon as their net hits the surface of the water, they see a flash, and just immediately the net is so full of fish that the nets start to break, the ship starts to sink. They've never seen a catch like this before, and all of a sudden it hits them. They look up at this man, and they realize that this Jesus is no ordinary man. And I can just imagine Jesus standing there kind of smirking. (laughs) Thought that was cool, did you? You like those fish, huh? I've got more where that came from. There's way more in store. In fact, if if you come with me, I'll, I'll make you fishers of people. I can do a lot better than that. Come follow me. And so they do. These fishermen, Peter, James, and John, they leave their nets behind and they follow this Jesus, this man, this prophet, this maybe, just maybe, Messiah, And for the rest of Luke's gospel, Luke makes a point to show us that Jesus is going around doing the things that the prophets said the Messiah would do. He teaches amazing things about God and how to follow him. He calms the storm. He casts out demons. He feeds 5,000 people with a Lunchable. I mean, it's Jesus. He, He heals the sick. He touches the lepers and the disease vanishes. He brings a dead boy back to life. Maybe, maybe just maybe the people think this guy's more than a prophet. Maybe, could it be that the Messiah is here? A couple weeks ago, I had a 10-hour plane ride and I got uh, stuck next to a guy who's a devout Jew. And so in between awful airline meals and action movies, we had some pretty fascinating conversations. And I asked this Jewish man if he was still waiting for the Messiah? He said, yes. I asked him what he thought Messiah would do when he comes. He said, when Messiah comes, the dead will rise. Hmm. He said, when Messiah comes, he will establish a utopia of sorts. I wonder if perhaps he means a utopia where like the sick are healed and sins are forgiven and the dead are raised. (laughs) Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Luke chapter seven, John the Baptist asks Jesus, hey, are are you the Messiah? How are we supposed to know if you're the one who was promised? And Jesus said, well, just take a look at what the prophet said and take a look at what I'm doing. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. What do you think? Luke chapter nine, Jesus himself asks his own disciples, "Who, who do you say that I am? They're all kind of just sitting around staring at each other. Sounds like a trick question. But then good old dependable motor mouth Peter blurts out, you're God's Messiah. And Jesus says, bingo. You didn't get that answer from yourself, Peter. You got that straight from God. Good job. By the way, I'm going to suffer. And those religious leaders that you followed all your life, they're going to reject me. And in fact, I'm going to die. And the disciples at this point are thinking, wait, 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 what? <laughs> Jesus, I think you're a little confused here. The Messiah is going to be the one doing the killing, not the one doing the dying. Messiah, Messiah, when he comes, I mean, he, the Messiah raises the dead and he feeds the 5,000 and he heals the sick. He controls the weather. He's the perfect commander for our army. So come on, Jesus, let's go, Messiah. Lead us to victory. In fact, Peter is so concerned with Jesus saying that the Messiah is going to suffer that Peter has the audacity to pull the Son of God aside to confront him. Peter kind of pulls Jesus off to the side, puts his arm around him. 
Hey, Jesus, old buddy, old pal. <laughs> First, let me say, you're really doing a great job with this whole Messiah thing. I mean, your, your sermons are getting better and better. You're working in some humor. Pretty good. I mean, your, your miracles, they're getting crisper, sharper. The bread you fed the 5,000, that was the freshest bread you've had yet. Well done, Jesus. I mean that. Good job. But Jesus, look, you got to be careful how you talk to these other guys. I mean, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tough. But, but James and John, they, they appear to be tough, but they're just putting on a front. They're, they're tender. They're vulnerable, Jesus. you got to be careful. So when you said the Messiah was going to die, I think you really burst their bubble. Why don't we just drop this Messiah suffering nonsense and get back to our job, huh? And Jesus looks at Peter with fire in his eyes. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus makes it very clear. He says, follow me. Yeah, we're on a journey, but don't you make any mistake about who's the one leading and who's the one following because I'm on a journey. Yes, I am, and you're coming with me, but this journey's not ended in a palace. It's ended in a cross. And if you want to follow me, you got to follow me all the way to the cross. He says it like this, Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Come follow me, Jesus says. Come follow me to the cross. And so from that moment in Luke chapter 9 on, Luke mentions over and over and over again that Jesus is on a journey. He's on a journey to Jerusalem. He's on a journey to the cross. And he's saying to us, come follow me. Come follow me to the cross. You know, there's a, a lot of preachers and churches who draw large crowds and fat paychecks by telling you that if you follow Jesus, it will make you healthy and wealthy and happy. And I'd love to stand up here and tell you today that if you follow Jesus, it'll make your life easier, all your problems will go away. But I can't do that. Because Jesus is calling us to follow him down the road less traveled down the narrow road that only a few find. Jesus is calling us to follow him to the cross. The biblical author Luke here, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, the account of Jesus' life, he didn't just write the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote a sequel, the book of Acts, which is what we've been studying the last few months. And the book of Acts is kind of the story of the church. And so these books, Luke and Acts, are kind of parallel in a way. So in the Gospel of Luke, we see Jesus saying and doing all these crazy countercultural things and getting himself in all kinds of trouble. And then in the book of Acts, we see Jesus' followers saying and doing all kinds of crazy countercultural things and getting themselves in all kinds of trouble. And perhaps the chief troublemaker in the book of Acts is a guy named Paul. Paul goes around preaching that Jesus is the Messiah and that the Messiah really did die, but that he also came back to life. And Paul causes quite a stir when he says this. Because people don't really like the idea of a crucified Messiah who welcomes all people and might actually call us on the cross with him. 
And Paul also does a lot of miracles, a lot like Jesus. Paul heals a lame man and he strikes a man blind and casts out a demon in the power of Jesus. And then just like Jesus, Paul also makes himself quite a few enemies. He gets himself in a few pickles. Uh, Paul has to escape in a basket lowered down from the city wall in Damascus. And people try to stone him at Iconium. And they do stone him and leave him for dead at Lystra. And he's beaten and jailed in Philippi. And he's chased out by mobs in Thessalonica and Berea and Ephesus. It seems like every time we see Paul in the book of Acts, he's got a new bruise or a couple broken ribs from some sermon gone wrong. Paul's no stranger to suffering. And so in Acts chapter 20, which is our text for the day, sorry for the world's longest introduction, A mob forces Paul to leave Ephesus, which is the place where he had his longest ministry. And once again, Paul's back on the road. The journey continues. And where does Paul say this journey's going? Where is he headed? Jerusalem. Sounds like Jesus. And along the way, along the journey, Paul stops and he meets up with some old friends and he tells them, this sounds a lot like Jesus, he says, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going to suffer. And then they try to stop him Sounds like Jesus. Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 25, Paul says this to his friends. He says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. You can almost hear Jesus in the background there, can't you? Saying, come follow me. Come follow me to the cross. And so Paul says a final goodbye to his friends. He boards the ship and he continues his journey to Jerusalem. And along the way, he makes a few more stops. He goes and visits some other churches. And they too try to stop him from going to Jerusalem because they know when he gets there, he's gonna suffer. A prophet even comes and warns him. Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. says, after we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet with it. And said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. And after this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. And again, we can almost hear Jesus calling in the background, come follow me. Come follow me to the cross. While Paul was on this journey to Jerusalem, he wrote a letter. He, he wrote a letter to a church that he loved, and we actually have the letter in our Bibles. It's called 2 Corinthians So look here in 2 Corinthians chapter four, what Paul writes as he's on his way to Jerusalem where he knows he's gonna suffer. He says this, 2 Corinthians chapter four, he says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. 
For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we're wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The title of this sermon today is From Life to Death. Because that's kind of what the Christian life is. It's offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, kind of always heading towards our own death. It's following Jesus to the cross, really. And Paul's saying here, he says, look, I'm following Jesus. I'm following Jesus to the cross. I, I actually died already, so it's fine. I died, I was crucified with Christ. I was buried when I was baptized. So the world, they can hurt my body, they can slander my reputation, they can attack my cause, but it's okay. This is a life worth dying for. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is saying, come follow me. Come follow me to the cross. Move from life to death. But that's not easy for us as humans. You know, we don't naturally take the road less traveled, the narrow road. We normally just look for the path of least resistance, don't we? Some of you might recognize the name Rick Barry. Uh, Rick Barry played pro basketball for many years, and he was a record-setting free-throw shooter. And the reason Rick Barry was so great from the free throw line is that he shot his free throws granny style. And no lie. And actually, his stats back it up and, and the physics back it up too. People have studied and proven that when you shoot your free throws granny style, the natural angle of the shot and the backspin on the ball makes your shot more likely to go in. It simply is scientifically a better way to shoot free throws. It just is. No questions asked. Uh, you probably also recognize the name Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain was one of the greatest basketball players of all time. He still holds the record for most points scored in a single game. He scored 100 points in one game. But over his career, Wilt Chamberlain was actually a pathetic free throw shooter. He only fought, uh, shot 54% from the free throw line. He was horrible. It was his, his Achilles heel. But in that game in 1962, when he scored 100 points, he switched things up and he shot his free throws granny style. And of the 32 free throws that he shot, he made 28 of them. Seems like Granny Style's the way to go. So the question then is, why don't we see more people shooting their free throws Granny Style? Why did even Wilt Chamberlain give it up, even after he saw that it worked? The Pacers are playing this afternoon against the Celtics, right? First game of the playoffs. And we love Brad Stevens, but we hope the Celtics go down in flames. <laughs> and when you watch the game today, you're not going to see anybody shooting their free throws Granny Style. Why? Well... I love my granny, my mom's the granny to my kids, I love that, but let's be honest, some seven-foot-tall, muscled-up basketball player doesn't want to look like a granny. <laughs> it looks silly. It's not the path of least resistance. And the world's gonna tell you to take the path of least resistance. Don't do anything that's gonna make you look silly. I'll just fudge on your taxes a little bit. I mean, it's way easier than chasing down all that paperwork. I'll just move in together. It's not a big deal. The Bible's so old-fashioned. Nobody ever actually lives like that anymore. Uh-oh, you're busted. What are you gonna do? 
should probably just tell a little white lie. It's not that big a deal. It's way easier than having to explain the truth. Just take the path of least resistance. But can you hear him? Can you hear Jesus calling in the background? Hey, come follow me. Come follow me to the cross. Because as Christians, we're not called to take the path of least resistance. We're called to take the road less traveled, the narrow road, the journey to the cross. Back in the mid-1900s, there were two brothers who lived in the deep south, Clarence and Robert Jordan. Robert Jordan was a politician. He went on to become a justice in the Georgia Supreme Court. And Clarence was a minister. And Clarence Jordan started this farm in Georgia, this interracial Christian community where people lived and worked and worshipped together regardless of their race. Needless to say, this was pretty controversial in the Deep South. And so they were constantly being harassed by the KKK. And one time, the gas company refused to deliver gas to the farm, even in the dead of winter, so they had no way to heat the place. And so Clarence, the minister, calls his brother Robert, the politician, and he asks for help. Hey, Robert, can you just make a few calls and help us out? And Robert says, Clarence, you know I can't do that. You know my political aspirations. Why, if I represented you, I might lose my job, my house, everything I've got, Robert. Well, we might lose everything too, Bob. Robert responded, well, it's, it's different for you. Why is it different, Clarence asked. I remember, seems to me, that you and I joined the church the same Sunday as boys. I expect when we came forward, the preacher asked you the same question as he did me. He asked me, do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And I said yes. What did you say, Robert? Oh, I follow Jesus, Clarence, up to a point. Clarence responded, might that point by any chance be the cross? That's right, Robert said. I follow him to the cross, but not on the cross. I'm not getting myself crucified. And Clarence said, well, then I don't believe you're a disciple. You might be an admirer of Jesus, but you're not a disciple of his. You know, today's Palm Sunday, the day where we celebrate the end of Jesus' journey when he gets to Jerusalem. And the people hail him, they celebrate him because the Messiah's here. But by the end of the week, he's hanging on a cross because the people don't really like the idea of a Messiah who dies and might call the people who follow him to give up their lives too. And this week, as we come to Good Friday and Easter, I hope you will admire the cross. I hope you will worship Jesus for the cross and thank him for the cross. But a teacher of mine once said, the cross of Jesus is not just something to appreciate. It's something to imitate. We're called to follow Jesus up to the cross, but we're also called to follow Jesus up on the cross. So if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, not just an admirer, then we need to crawl up on the cross to follow Jesus to the cross, to follow Jesus up on the cross. And I'm not gonna pretend to know what that looks like in your life, but I do know it's probably something hard. 
I do know that when Jesus calls you to carry the cross, it's gonna be something difficult, it's gonna be something scary. And the fact of the matter is, you probably already know what it is, you probably already know what you should be doing, I probably don't need to tell you. I don't know, maybe, maybe carrying your cross means choosing to forgive the person who hurt you instead of harboring a grudge. Maybe carrying your cross means having the courage to open your home and welcome people into your life even if it's messy. Maybe carrying your cross means being willing to speak up and tell the truth even if it might hurt you. Maybe carrying your cross means being willing to lay down your pride and share with your, your faith with somebody who needs to know the reason for the hope that you have. Maybe carrying your cross means ending the relationship that's leading you into sin. Maybe carrying your cross means laying down your personal preferences for the good of somebody else. Maybe carrying your cross means driving a car that's a little older and living in a house that's a little less nice and spending a little less money on your hobbies so that you can prioritize God's kingdom and your finances. I don't know what exactly carrying a cross will look like in your life, but I do know that this journey, this journey of following Jesus to the cross is a hard one. When my dad and I got to California, we woke up early and laced up our shoes and we set out hiking while it was still dark. And the trail started off pretty easy, but it got steeper and steeper the further we went because you don't get to the top of Half Dome by taking the path of least resistance. And so we hiked switchback after switchback after switchback as the day wore on. We hiked and hiked and hiked until eventually the trail stopped. We couldn't just hike anymore because we were faced in front of us with the sheer rock face that is the top of Half Dome. And so instead of walking up, we couldn't walk or hike up. And the sheer rock face had this wire mounted into it. And we had to pull ourselves up using this wire for the last several hundred feet. <laughs> and the day before our hike I'd gone to the gift shop and flipped through the book that talks about when and where and how all the people died on this climb, falling off or getting struck by lightning. So all that's playing through my mind as we're hiking. And as we're pulling ourselves up these wires, some guy way up above me drops his water bottle and I see it go bouncing and skidding down the mountain hundreds and hundreds of feet. And I thought, oh, that could be me if I let go of this wire. <laughs> it was hard. It was long. But step after step and pull after pull, we finally made it to the peak. And the road was tough, and the path wasn't easy, <laughs> but the view from the top was worth it. I keep a rock in my office from the top of Half Dome to remind me, and perhaps today to remind you, that this journey Jesus calls us to is not easy. It's a journey to a cross, but it's worth it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for calling us to follow you. And we want to, we really do. We know that following you is a hard call. It's a call to take up our cross daily, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And so we ask you to help us take up our cross. That's a hard prayer. We don't really even know what we're praying when we ask that, but we want to do it. Because you did. And so it's my prayer today, Lord, that you'd show each of us in this room how you want us to take up our cross. And we will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.